Hi, my name is Laura Dees, Olympic bronze medalist in the sport of skeleton and also the first Welsh woman to win a Winter Olympic medal. It's not healthy for it to be the only thing going on in your life and the only thing that has meaning. That's really dangerous to get to that position. Yeah, there's been a huge amount of like unpacking of various emotions and things that's gone on over the over the few months and I think yeah I'm, I'm at a point now where I can be relatively reflective and dispassionate about it. Hello and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset podcast. Season 2 of the Olympic Mindset podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. This week's guest is Laura Dees, an Olympic medalist in the skeleton. She has been part of an extremely successful period for the British skeleton. However, in 2022, there was a blip. Laura speaks with openness and honesty about how this blip in form has affected her and how she's working even harder to bounce back. It's amazing to hear the insight into the pressures of carrying the hopes and dreams of a nation and a really interesting insight into the mindset of an elite individual. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thank you very much for joining me today. As you know, massive fan, my wife is a massive fan of yours. Before we get started, would you explain your sport to us? Yeah, so uh, I basically do a ridiculous sport, which um, is called skeleton, and no one really knows why. Um, it used to be called bobsleigh skeleton and then we dropped the bobsleigh bit so we we're trying to just push the skeleton now skeleton which you can see um behind me um i push and then uh jump onto and then basically slide head first down about a mile of ice trying to navigate the corners as i go basically looking for the fastest line and keeping the most aerodynamic form that i can and we reach ridiculous speeds of up to 80 miles an hour plus it's not unusual for a race to be split by maybe one or two hundredths of a second. So it's a funny mixture of having to just go for it and throw caution to the wind and then also having to try and be really precise and very diligent about what you do, because obviously every minute detail does count to a certain extent. And do you know what? That's a really interesting point that you raised there, that kind of balance between having the kind of risk adverse kind of attitude to jumping on a, a tiny piece of material and jumping down a slope to obviously all the preparation the prep work the consideration the kind of theoretical underpinning of what you've done how do you marry the two and what's the kind of bridging point for you when you start the sport it's really overwhelming um and just standing at the top trying to marshal your thoughts and trying to even just work out what you're going to concentrate on that run on on that run is really difficult because you're traveling at 30 meters per second you've got to be really precise about what you're actually going to focus on because you can't it's impossible to focus on everything so as you become a more experienced slider you you kind of learn how to decide what it is you're going to focus on what you're going to let go of and what you're going to focus on which will make the biggest difference I try and think of it as like um, a filtering system essentially so the start of the week I've got a quite a broad um, perspective on a bit of everything Um, we walk down the track before we slide it um, and 
look at the profile of the ice and try and anticipate what the sled's going to do because the way that the ice is shaped by hand so each time you go back there although the corner the corners are the same the ice that's laid on top of it can be slightly different um so we 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 look at that and then basically what i'm doing through the week is i'm trying to each day come back to the track having narrowed down what i think the biggest um bang for buck essentially is going to be in terms of accuracy and um, focus so that hopefully by race day i've only got three or four things within that run probably that i'm really consciously got attention on and the rest of it then just becomes instinct it's interesting that analogy that was running through my head based on obviously you know i work in education and people that listen to this podcast might be outside education and in other sectors but Sometimes it feels like running a school is like sliding down ice. <laughs> so when you said about standing at the top and having that broad perspective before you jump down the ice, that's kind of how it feels at the start of a week. You've got this like journey ahead of you that you know is going to be very, very tricky, potentially dangerous. Um, and then you need to just basically, as you move through the week, become, you know, focus on smaller priorities that you're going to get the most impact from. Is there a process to that? Like what's the process behind selecting your most important points for the week? I guess it's a mixture of planning and then being reactive as well. So I guess I would go into the week with a kind of a proactive plan of anticipating where the problems are going to be. Um, and that's part of what that track walk would be at the start of the week. So I look at look at the whole 1500 metres of ice or whatever, and, and I look at where I think the issues are going to be or historically where I've done well or I've struggled in the past. But then each time you take a run, you get a little bit more information. And so it's not unusual for something to to get thrown up into the mix, which you didn't think was going to be a problem. For instance, there might be a corner that you've never had a problem with before. But for some reason this year, they've shaped it slightly differently and you can't you just can't get it right. And so you may not that may not have featured in your plans at all. But then suddenly it's an issue and you've got to deal with it. It becomes a priority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also just on the sled as well, like you might go into a corner 20 centimetres to the left of where you wanted to. And that throws up a whole different range of scenarios that you've got to deal with. And then that's something that you've got to do in the moment for that at all. You've just got to understand what it is you're trying to do, broadly speaking, and then react in the moment based off your kind of underpinning knowledge, I guess. Yeah. And, and I'm a massive fan of that kind of, what is the expression? Sorry, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Yeah, that, that underpinning, that theoretical underpinning, the, the homework and all the, the work you do prior to an activity in the planning, it needs to be spot on to give you the best opportunity to succeed. However, you've made a really interesting point there about being adaptable and able to make those changes. Talking about yourself now, emotionally, what does that look like when you're faced with a challenge or something that comes out of the blue? Do you go through, have you heard of the Kubler-Ross cycle, grief cycle? No, I haven't. So basically when you... Um, when you're confronted with a change or something that causes anxiety inside you, then you kind of go through this cycle of frustration um, or shock, frustration, depression, acceptance, and then you kind of move forward. But that beginning stage of shock and frustration, and, and I think it tips into bargaining as well. You kind of flip back and forth between these three. Most people struggle to push through. It sounds like you have got a really good ability to move through that Kubler-Ross change cycle quickly. How do you... I guess what I'm asking is how do you park those emotions and move through quickly enough and respond to what's in front of you without feeling that sense of depression, that resentment, the anger that comes with things being thrown at you left, right and centre? That's a really interesting concept. I've never I've never heard that explained exactly as you have them, but it instantly 
resonated with me because you basically described the exact cycle of emotions that you go through after you've taken a run and you're waiting to take your second run and you've got to process everything that's happened good bad indifferent the emotional stuff the technical stuff um the conversation with your coach literally everything and you've got to somehow you've got to get back to a state of readiness to stand at the top of the track again maybe one hour later and do it all again but better it's not easy it takes it's it's a skill and it takes practice and that's something that to start with and I don't think it's unusual for ice sport athletes to to find this difficult because of the way that our sport is you know in a race you've got two shots to get it right and quite often there's this sort of shortish window from one run to the next and you've got to get yourself back to the right emotional state to go again um, regardless of what's just gone before um, and that's something that I struggled with to start with. I used to really struggle to shake off what had happened in the first run and be able to sort of almost park it, as you said, and 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 go again. And yeah. I think there's, yeah, that sort of accepting what's happened is a skill, takes time, and it, it you almost have to sort of ingrain it as a bit of a habit, I think. And then I think for me, I'm trying to turn what's just happened, whether it's technical, emotional, conversation or whatever whatever it is I'm trying to translate that in my mind into a process goal as quickly as I can as an example if I you know I I messed up a corner and I hit really hard on the exit and lost loads of time I'm going to be really annoyed about that but that annoyance although it's natural isn't going to help me so I've got to work out a way of making what happened useful to inform the next time round. um and that's where the coach athlete conversation comes in and is really important that you have that relationship with someone that anticipates how you're going to feel about something. You can have that efficient conversation about how we're going to change something. Um, and then, yeah, in my mind, I've then got to turn it into a an action on the sled that I can then go and do. I'm glad you've touched on leadership without me needing to prompt you, because as you know, this podcast does center around leadership and life lessons. So we spoke a little about your life. Now, would you mind telling us a bit about your kind of experience of leadership and the opportunities you've had to lead, whether that be representing your country or lead on a smaller scale? And obviously leaders that you've worked with, what are the kind of key features that you've you've taken from that? I think my my reflection from, from working with some great people, um, and this is kind of a realisation that I came to a few years into my career, is that um, for me, it has to feel like a collaboration the people that you work with uh, even though there's a hierarchy there I think to function effectively whilst you have to respect that hierarchy it also under high pressure you have to feel like you absolutely trust each other and, and got each other's backs um, and there is there is nothing more high pressure than standing at the top of the track at the Olympic Games and knowing that a hundredth of a second either way can make or break you um, so having absolute trust in those people around you it sounds obvious but you, you have to really believe that to be the case. And I think if there's any doubt there, that can be, that can really undermine things. Um, and it, you know, if, if that goes wrong and, and the trust breaks down somehow, you can very quickly, without really realizing it, end up in a, in a very negative situation, which is incredibly unhelpful. Um, but yeah, I think the, the most effective teams that I've been a part of Regardless of who's been the leader, it's been about trust and shared responsibility. At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. 
That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. And sometimes I would consider myself a leader, I guess, in certain situations. Um, maybe when it comes to mentoring some of the younger athletes in the squad, for instance. Um, and I think approachability is really important as well and accessibility to not, don't put yourself on a pedestal. You know, you can you can learn as much from someone that's just started the sport as they can learn from you that's been in the sport for over a day. And I think not to just assume that you always know best because you're in that sort of leadership position is is really important too. Yeah, I agree. And everyone is a leader in an organisation, whether you believe you are or not, as you've already alluded to, the younger athletes will look up to you and aspire to be you. And that kind of mentorship and the way you carry yourself is so, so important. And quite often, I'll speak to staff or I've been coaching and mentoring people and they'll ask questions like, why am I being considered for promotion? Why have I been overlooked for this opportunity? And actually, when you get to the heart of the problem, they're not conducting themselves as a leader yet, but then they want to be a leader. So kind of quite often the conversation will go down the route of, oh, well, when I get the job, then I'm going to do this and then I'll do that. Whereas sadly, it doesn't work that way. You know, clarity of of conviction in the way that you act and and stepping up and being a leader before you're a leader, I think is really important. I think that's so true. Just sorry, I was just going to add that I think it as our for some reason I, I always come back to this my um my mum bought me a poster for my bedroom wall when I was quite young and the the slogan on it was as you used to from places like HMV and stuff and the slogan was have the courage to be a leader and I never really got it what that actually meant or what I took it to mean till years later but actually I think I think like you said anyone can be a leader in any situation and I think it takes it can it does take courage but I think what is important is that you understand your own values if you're conducting yourself in line with your own personal values and the values that you've agreed on as a team then it all becomes much easier because you know what you stand for and you have those parameters for right wrong good bad and it becomes much easier to sort of navigate your your life I guess in a sense and that's something that um, one of the sports psychologists I worked with mentioned this idea of living conducting yourself in line with your values and actually deciding what your values are knowing what they are and that actually makes a lot of other areas of your life a lot easier once you're once you know that and you're comfortable with that. So was that an idea of kind of establishing who you are as a person so then when you're in your professional environment there's less of an opportunity to lose yourself is that the reason why you did that? I think so. Yeah. So it was an exercise that we were all um, encouraged to do to essentially assess, ask yourself some questions and there are no right or wrong answers, but kind of to help you understand, you know, what your drivers are, what your values are, what you find important in yourself and in other people. And then I think once you know that it, like I said, it's a bit of a, it's a helpful blueprint for navigating situations. And particularly if you've got like, what you would consider a tough conversation to have or, or something difficult that you want to talk about. If you're coming at it from a place where you fundamentally feel comfortable with yourself and what you stand for, I think that you, you 
automatically feel like you're standing on firmer grounds and that gives you more confidence to act as you want to act. And I think that's tied in with self-esteem as well. I mean, what you're talking about there for me is that detachment from you as a professional to you as a person and having that kind of at the heart of all that you do. A lot of people start with what their job is. And I think that's quite an unhealthy way to look at things, you know, those five words. So what do you do? And just a small anecdote quickly. So when things went wrong, I took it really personally and took it really, really hard because I kind of lost those other I guess you'd call them cornerstones or foundations of, of who I was. And those, I'd imagine them like pillars. I'm a, currently a director of education, but I'm a father, you know, so relationships are, are important to me. Um, activities, you know, I love doing things and going out and being busy. And then I've got like another pillar, I guess you'd call it, of, of joy. And those four things kind of make me as a person. So hopefully in the future, when I face adversity and inevitably fail at something, I won't lose that sense of identity. And I think that's something most people should do. And I think as an athlete as well, I hope that you don't just identify as an athlete because obviously there's a hell of a lot more to you. That This is something which athletes struggle with hugely is that your identity is wrapped up in what you do as a sport. And that's obviously it's what people know you for. And probably the bigger your public platform, the harder it is to separate yourself from that. Um, and... I think that's probably so last year was a particularly difficult year for me professionally because uh, it was the lead, the lead up to the Olympic Games and um, my races weren't going well. I hadn't clicked with the equipment that we had. Um, my results were terrible. I was borderline not even qualified to, to get to the Olympics. Um, and. Yeah, it, it was tough and I had to kind of it was very difficult it became almost like racing became everything so it got to the point it, it was a very negative cycle it got to the point where I turn up at the track on race day and I would feel like everything in my life was resting on this race result and the the more um pressure I put on that being the case the worse I was on the sled because you can't slide you know tense and preoccupied it doesn't work um so I it took a bit of an intervention for me um with a few races left before the Olympics to try and reset that mentality because it the pressure had sort of stopped allowing me to separate the person from the competitor um and it was it was a very negative place to be so I think like going into this um, this winter of competition like that's something I really want to keep an eye on is making sure that like the racing as important as it is isn't all consuming because it's just it's not great to get into that I mean it's fine it's one of those things that feels fine when the racing's going well because you can take energy out of it and you can be inspired by it and excited to go again but then the flip side of that is that if it's not going well it can become you know very very like negative place to be and not not good at all support improvement of children's physical and mental well-being with striver from too simple teachers of all experience levels will feel confident and in complete control the PE and Wellbeing Package includes over 400 PE lessons supported by six wellbeing units, all housed online, that makes planning and assessment a breeze. 
You don't need any specialist training to deliver impactful sessions and they can be done anywhere without any fancy equipment. Right now, you can access a Striver sample pack completely free, including full lessons for basketball and yoga. Download your free pack at twosimple.com forward slash Olympic Mindset. It's too simple. I think Michael Phelps called it gold medal syndrome, where you kind of achieve that kind of whatever it might be. And because your identity is so heavily wrapped up in it, you kind of lose that sense. But as you've just pointed out there, failure then hits so much harder and it can be so much harder to overcome. I know so many people that their job is such a big part of their identity. A lot of my friends work in sport, particularly in football. There's a lot of abuse that some of my friends and colleagues have had in the past when things have gone wrong. And you need to turn up the next day and put that aside and move on. And that can be really tough, particularly if you don't have those pillars, as I kind of said earlier, of knowing who you are, knowing what you stand for. If one of them crumbles, you can lean on the other three or four. Yeah, I think I'm definitely guilty of not um, not taking care of that and and becoming everything, becoming all consuming. And I think in sometimes in sport, we're encouraged to for it to be all encompassing, you know, to, to appear like you're. Um, a committed athlete that's giving 100% all the time to be seen that that is everything to you and that you've got nothing else going on in your life is actually seen as a positive or you know has been up to very recently which when you think about it is mad because it, it whilst you want that dedication that commitment it is not healthy for it to be the only thing going on in your life and the only thing that has meaning that's really dangerous to get to that position. You know, we need to do better in sport at that not being the case. Because, you know, if you want a long career in, in a sport, you can't you can't let it be everything. It's a bit of a paradox because people want you to be 100% committed and 100%, you know, motivated. But, yeah, you have to you have to have that separation. Otherwise, it, you'll you'll burn out. Well, it's a funny thing, right? Because obviously, you know, having watched you compete and as I've already told you, my wife watched your final and was a massive fan as well. So people get caught up so much in the emotion of a sporting event. They kind of ride the highs with you, but then what they do quite quickly is detach from your low. And that's where the blame comes from. And I think there are peaks and troughs to performance. And actually, performance is not always an indicator of, of class or long-term quality. It's just form. That can be really hard for most people outside sport to appreciate to to attach yourself to performance is a really unhealthy thing to do because we all have so much going on in our lives things can go wrong and we see this a lot in schools that get inspected the school fails an inspection everybody says they must be awful and you need to fire everyone and it doesn't work like that there can be so many different factors that cause that yeah yeah totally I I was something I was really afraid of going into Beijing knowing that I wasn't in good form was the the fear of the outside perception of the performance. Um, so that's sort of fear of the public viewing me as a failure because inevitably my result was going to be worse than the last Olympics. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how much by until I got there, but I knew it was going to be, it was going to be worse just because of the position I was in with where we were at um, as a team and what we had to work with. And, it was very difficult to go to the Olympics in a way. And um, whilst whilst it's always an amazing experience to represent your country at the Olympics, it was a real double-edged sword for me because I knew I was walking into a situation where I was going to do worse than last time. And going into an Olympics as a defending medalist, 
and doing and then not coming home with another medal like I knew that I was going to be facing a lot of questions and a lot of criticism um, on the other side of the race and it was very difficult to not let that consume the whole experience um, and I think I think under the circumstances I did a pretty good job of um, waiting until you know the, the media zone at the end of each run to to have to deal with that section of it but it was very difficult and it was something that I never had to deal with at the previous Olympics obviously going in fresh unknown underdog um it was very very different I think also it was tough for you because you've kind of established yourself as a high performer right so when you're then not meeting that ridiculously high standard you set for yourself it can be really tough but you know just to reassure you from like the average Joe's perspective it's an unbelievable achievement I personally wouldn't do it not even once for fun it looks too dangerous I'd be too scared so the fact you do it competitively and push yourself to the limit in a sport that people have died in by the way um it's an unbelievable thing that you did and you know it's amazing to hear that you get into a place where you can kind of reflect on this and be so a refreshingly open and honest about it but b it feels like you know when you speak to somebody you can tell this is still raw it doesn't feel like that with you it feels like it's something you've kind of you've accepted, you've packaged, you've parked and you're moving forward from that place. Yeah, I, and I think that, yeah, that grief cycle you spoke about a little while ago, I've literally been going through that. And I think that's what the post-Olympic blues is um, because whether it's been good, you know, a positive experience or a negative experience, you're, experience, you're on the other side of it and you can't really prepare for being on the other side of something that huge um, because you just don't know how you're going to feel. So yeah there's been a huge amount of like unpacking of various emotions and things that's gone on over the over the few months and I think yeah I'm, I'm at a point now where I can be relatively reflective and dispassionate about it um but I still want it to inform you what I do going forward as well because you can't just I don't think it's a good idea to just sort of throw everything in the bin either mentally and say oh well I'll just forget that that happened because actually it was an important life experience and yeah there are a lot of a lot of lessons to learn from it as well. I think that the failing is is kind of quite a sobering thing because I'd imagine it's a very going from the success where everybody wants to be on board to not achieving that success. I'd imagine it's quite a lonely thing, and you kind of become more inward facing rather than taking in all the outside noise. It becomes a chance to reflect, recalibrate, and start again. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I, I would. I think it does feel quite lonely because you you feel like there is no one else in your position right now that feels exactly the way you do that other people aren't necessarily going to get why you feel the way you feel and I think you know everyone goes through the process of of processing those things at different speeds so you know someone might bounce back and you see this after Olympics where someone comes back to the UK and they think they're fine and then it hits them a month later either you know what an amazing thing I did I went to the Olympics or you know they've got emotions to deal with about the fact that they didn't achieve what they wanted to do and like and everyone goes through that at a different rate um and you know I've seen that firsthand and experienced it firsthand. So what do you recalibrate with when you go away from the track when you go away from what you do I've already told you my you know career is obviously a big part of my personality whether I like it or not is what I do is what I'm identified as and it's led to me having the opportunity to speak to you today and to do some really cool things so it's an important part of my identity but it's not the only part I've got as I've said, relationships, activities, and joy. I'm not very deep, as my wife would say. So I've only got the four layers. Well, you know, off the top of your head, what would you say yours were? 
so I'm a very empathic person. So environment's really important to me. I, I get recharged by feeling connections with people. So you know, I'm, I may not particularly enjoy going into a room full of, you know, massive room full of people and making small talk. But I love to have deep, meaningful conversations with people and, yeah. and build those deep friendships and, you know, coach athlete relationships and so on. That's really important to me. So uh, me and Lizzie used to joke about this, like just sit and have a cup of tea together and talk about anything but sliding. Yeah. sliding but you know it's good to get away from from the track as well um what else well, this is where I'm not very good so you're kind of constrained on on the skeleton circuit because you're often uh sharing a small hotel room with someone else and you've got time constraints and so on because you've got outside of actually sliding you've also got technical work on the sled to do so you've got to be a bit of a part-time engineer as well and then all of the sort of technical review stuff so you've got to you know be able to read graphs and data and analyze stuff so that that takes up quite a lot of time as well so I think trying to for me to compartmentalize my time and to think right okay I've got a 45 minute window here I can go for a walk or um just silly things like I'll go around the supermarket and just browse around the random German supermarket because (laughs) because it involves leaving the hotel room going and sort of switching off and doing you something sound like else. my wife that's the kind of yeah. stuff she does why would you walk around a random german supermarket just to have a look why not <laughs> they might have a different brand of shampoo to the last place yeah. it sounds it. really flippant but just like just being able to break that like um the connection with the the work i suppose and take yourself off and do something different and and really there isn't much more exciting stuff you can do than that on circuit you know other than immerse yourself in a box set of something or read a good book and speak to your family and friends at home but you know reading activities like that and obviously you've started to point to different activities that you do with the limited time that you have it's important though that you have those things and you have those things that you can remove yourself from and, and, and be part of so and and the thing probably you haven't really mentioned is joy I think a lot of what you've mentioned there is like a very practical element everything you do as as a function and that's amazing it obviously means you've reached that peak of performance but if you lose sight of the joy then it can make that crash a lot harder and obviously the ride not as enjoyable which speaking to Devin Harris he and Derek Redmond two of the older oh they're not going to be happy I said that two of the older athletes I've spoken to during this podcast both of them the advice they would give to their younger selves was to be happier and enjoy it whereas all of the younger actors active athletes I'm speaking to I say no it's about the performance it's about it's, it's very functional so it's yeah. really interesting to kind of see that you kind of fit that yeah it really is I think actually that's something I I spoke about um in in part of my review for um, thinking about what I want to do this season is I'm just you know I just want to enjoy sliding again at the end of the day you are doing a ridiculous thing you're sliding down a mountain it's so easy to get wrapped up in the technical aspects of it like everything we've spoken about about the hundredths of the second and the aerodynamics and stuff you need to enjoy it and I think like that's when I've slid at my best is when I've I've been enjoying it as well and it is a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle because if you're doing well it's easier to enjoy it it's very difficult to enjoy something when you're not doing it well (laughs) Um, when you know you can do it well that you know it's hard to conjure that up but one of my reflections of my time in the sport is that the circumstances that I joined the sport in felt very, um, very pressured and very serious. And when, when I got brought into the sport, I came in through a, a fast track um, program that was 
run by UK Sport and it was taken incredibly seriously because it was the first time that this had been done in the UK where we were um, essentially trying to transfer athletes from one sport to another and get them up to Olympic standard in one cycle and we knew that we were there to do a very specific job and that there was you know ring fenced funding for this and it was very important and so we were given brilliant coaching brilliant resources great equipment and we started to have success really quickly but at no point did anyone talk about enjoying the sport um and it's interesting now I speak to people who um I slid with back then over a decade ago that I know well now they will say to me god you were so you were so aloof in the changing room you'd never smile you'd never the Brits would never um you know go out in the evenings you'd never have a joke with us and and I would say yeah it's because we were you know we were under pressure we were there to do a job and get specific results and and it wasn't really until later in my career that I realized that you know funnily enough I slide better and I'm more relaxed on the sled when I enjoy it so you've brought up your childhood a little there. Do you want to tell us a little about your childhood? Because I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm not just being nosy. I'm a big kind of believer in nature versus nurture. And I'm personally trying to understand that with my own children as well. So I'm interested to hear about your journey from, you know, what your childhood was like, whether your parents were really competitive, really pushy or not. And then how you kind of found your way into professional sport. So I, um, I'm the eldest of two. So I've got a younger brother who's uh, three and a bit years younger than me. Um, and we grew up um, in the countryside in North Wales, near Wrexham. And my mum uh, was very, very competitive by nature, quite a confident person, um, very much a go-getter and always sort of encouraged me. I mean, as I said, she's on board with that poster. Uh, she, you know, she was very much about, you know, putting yourself out there and doing your best and showing people what you what you had, basically. And my dad is more of a reserved character and less competitive, enjoyed being active and outdoors, but not really in a competition setting so much. So my main sport growing up was horse riding. That's something that my mum did and, and passed on the interest to me and my brother. I guess, yeah, a lot of my early competition experiences I guess were were on horseback and of course when you're when you've got a horse in the mix as well there's always that element of you can't guarantee an outcome so I think I learned early on that you know you might have grand plans to to win the competition but if the if the horse doesn't agree with you then that's not going to happen so I, I think from an early age I had a pretty um pragmatic approach to competition because I always had that sense of well I can make grand plans but that might not be the outcome and I think that used to actually irritate my mum a bit because she she would wonder why I wasn't just more out and out you know competitive and want to win everything and for me it was much more about sitting back and assessing the okay what's actually realistic what can I actually hope to achieve and then kind of go for that instead and it's not that I wasn't competitive because I am I just felt that going out and hoping to win everything all the time was just setting myself up for disappointment so we came at it from different angles and um had quite a few arguments (laughs) (laughs) over the years and I think uh, probably the other thing I'd say about uh, my childhood or or growing up is that I was very lucky to go to a school I was I went to an all-girls school I was very lucky that at no point did anyone ever tell me that I couldn't do whatever I wanted because I was a girl. Being honest, I I didn't really twig 
that lots of girls and women experience that until after I left school and I've heard about, you know, other people's experiences of, you know, being told that they, they can't do a sport because it's not, it's not girly enough or it's a boys sport or um, that it's not cool to be competitive. And, and I was very lucky that I managed to avoid that. So I was able to experience loads of different sports. I wasn't really ever pigeonholed into you must do this because you have these attributes or you're you're a girl or whatever so I'm probably more like you a bit more pragmatic there's some things I can control there's some things I can't so if something was to go wrong I can move forward from it quite quickly because I recognize that's out of my control so when it does fall on you and it's all on you how do you respond to that I don't know really because I I don't know whether I when I'm in those high pressure moments do I feel like it's all on me or do I feel I guess I do it's a weird mixture skeleton of being like it's a real team effort to get to the start block. But then once you're there, it is just on you. Mm. Um, and no one else can help you from that point onwards. And um, would you class yourself I, as an introvert or an extrovert? Um, I think naturally I'm an introvert. Uh, as I said, like I don't, I wouldn't necessarily enjoy, um, I wouldn't necessarily go, you know, make, go make random small talk with someone I didn't know, for instance, just because I was bored. I'd probably rather sit and, observe the room you know um but having said that I think being in sport has given me a lot of confidence uh, within within that context to speak to people and um back myself and um be confident in kind of I guess doing this kind of thing and sharing my experiences and I guess realizing that it, it's got some sort of value to other people as well and that's that's the thing that I enjoy I, I enjoy doing this kind of thing and visiting schools and stuff because yeah, I, I like to kind of share the experience. So it's not just it's not just useful for me. It's useful for other people as well, hopefully. Yeah. And I think you've kind of alluded to this, whether you're aware of it or not. You've only named those three kind of pillars we referred to, didn't we? And you said, oh, there's only three. But actually, I've got to know you over the course of this interview. It feels like you've built a bit of a coliseum of self-worth which obviously for an introvert is really important because an introvert could be really hard on themselves. So the fact that you have such a song, strong sense of identity and sense of self-worth does come from that, as I've just said, like Colosseum, all these different pillars, all these different experiences that have made you, which means you're able to hold the hopes of a nation on your shoulders. And when it doesn't go well, okay, it hurts in the moment, but you can move forward from it. It doesn't destroy you. It just becomes a learning point and you can move on from that. And I think to take what you've achieved on the magnitude and the scale that you've achieved that and the things that have gone wrong and the scale that you've experienced that on, I feel that most people in most settings should be able to kind of cope with those things because ultimately, and this is a bit of existentialism, this was taught to me by a guy I worked with before, much brighter than me. I'm just regurgitating this. But basically the idea is that none of us really matter. So actually when we fail, people just forget. I mean, it feels like the end of the world to you in that moment, but most people forget. And that's why quite often it seems like people like yourself that have risen up quite high, people will think that's a lot easier than it was because they don't see all the failures. They just see the success. So, you know, it's, it's that iceberg effect, isn't it? They just see the tip. They don't see all the hard work and the graft and the failure beneath. So I guess what I'm saying is never take too failure too hard and, and never, you know, enjoy the high too much because I, I feel like you need to be on a bit of a level whatever you do yeah I think I think you're you're so right and as I, that's something I've realized you know when I said at the beginning about learning to sort of rationalize and detach a little bit from the 
from the outcome. I think as I've got older, I've realized that, um, you know, we, we are only on this planet for a, you know, a flash of time. And when you're looking at the, you know, the history of the universe and really does, does any of it even matter? And um, I think that's quite a nice counterpoint to the pressure and feeling like, you know, when you when you get to wear the Olympic rings and you have the status of an Olympian and, and an Olympic medalist and people, you do start to feel like people will remember and watch every moment. And I think, you know, that's exactly where I was going into Beijing, that sort of fear of the judgment and so on. But actually, I think as I got, got older, I'm, I'm getting better at taking that step back and thinking, you know what, enjoy the ride because it's not going to last forever. Also, people don't watch the highlights when you lose, do they? So no one will watch that again. <laughs> so you can forget about it. And move. They all, everyone keeps watching when you were successful, so I won't worry exactly. about it. That'll get, that'll get pushed to the back and no one will see it. <laughs> this episode of The Olympic Mindset is sponsored by Hue, makers of colourful, affordable visualisers and animation kits, perfect for creative teaching, homeschooling and remote working. Described by many teachers as a complete game changer, Hue's high quality USB document cameras have won awards worldwide and they are also STEM.org authenticated. Hue cameras make it quick and easy to share work, record lessons or save time and money by not having to photocopy. The manual focus and flexible neck means that you can show even the smallest objects and nobody misses out because they can't see. Follow at Hue Cameras on social media for news, fun and giveaways. And for a limited time offer of 10% discount, please enter the code OLYMPIC10 at the HueHD.com shop. When you're finished with your sport, what will you take into whatever you do next? Touch on something I've said before, I think building connections with people. Like I said, I, like, I think it's very important to connect on a personal level with someone to be able to navigate those high pressure moments and obviously you know professionalism is important but I think if fundamentally I think if I feel like somebody knows me as a person and understands my motivations my fears my strengths my weaknesses then I'm much more likely to trust that person to lead me um, and so I think having having that level of um, understanding of the other person, I suppose, is important. And do you know John Pett? He's the high-performance coach of the modern pentathlon at the moment. Um, oh, he, I don't know, although they're, they're based at the same training base as me. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I mentioned it. I thought you might have known. He's new. He's only just started. He used to be okay. the high-performance director at the uh, GB Paralympic Cycling. Anyway, I, I went to uni with him, but he's also... Um, been on this podcast talking about empathetic leadership he says that relationships and getting to know people and letting them feel part of a team and feel valued that's so much more important and then obviously conversely that relates and transfers into the the high performance that you need so I find it interesting that you say that because I feel like there's a bit of a swing we're moving towards that kind of culture of leadership now yeah I I, I hope we're moving in that direction and I think like especially now I'm a more experienced athlete and I know myself for me, it's important to feel like I have a seat at the table when discussions are being made about me. You know, there's a lot of planning and, um, I guess, assessing and judging and predicting uh, that goes on in, in high performance sport. And I think, you know, what's the harm in having having me in those conversations? At the end of the day, I'm, I know myself better than anyone else does. And 
I'm the person on that piece of equipment that's going down the mountain and it to me it's a no-brainer put the athlete in the in the conversation put the athlete in the room and let them be part of the conversation what's the worst that can happen <laughs> not everybody can have a seat at the table because the table's only so big right but I feel like we should be taking more account of what people think whether that's surveys or whatever and I feel like again we're shifting towards that but the worst the worst or least effective leaders I work with often forget to set a vision, often forget to communicate what that vision is and often forget to consult with staff on big decisions. And then when things don't work or they're not embedded, it always comes back to this. I um, think that's how you, the best way to create buy-in, which is essentially it's what you want, isn't it? Is for people to feel like they've, they're invested in the process as well. And the way to get people invested in the process is by giving them a voice. Talking of voice, what's your relationship like with social media? Well, that's a really interesting one. So I I think the, the, the span of time that I've been involved in professional sport, social media has gone from being a, to start with, not really a thing. Then, a, I mean, I was still using dial-up internet when I started my skeleton <laughs> career. You had to pay by the minute to check your emails. So, um, yeah, I mean, and then it became like a, maybe an optional extra, something that the cool kids were doing. Um, and to start with, it was it was seen by lots of people, including me, as maybe an unnecessary distraction. And then it's kind of shifted all the way from being an optional extra to being kind of a side by side to almost being front and center how people live their lives and it's almost weird if you're not involved in that um, and that was something that was a real shift for me between just the four years between Pyeongchang in 2018 and Beijing 2022 it still felt in 2018 like it was didn't really matter whether you did or you didn't have a public a social media profile um, but by Beijing it was like it's just part of who people are and I'd, for good or bad it's impossible to to avoid now People of our generation will spend up to six years of their life on social media. But I feel sorry for the guys coming through behind us and my kids particularly. They're going to grow up with this. And mm -hmm. it's six years for us. It's going to be much more for them. Yeah, I still think I have a, just comparing myself maybe with some younger athletes that I know, I have a greater degree of separation from my online self to my person, you know, my real life self. And what I put on social media is updates. It's essentially what would have gone on a personal website I guess or a blog it's a uh, I went and did this it was really great this is what it was whereas the younger generation will will share their entire life to varying degrees but whereas I'm using it as a platform for a specific purpose I feel like now people use it just as an extension of them mm. um, and that's where I'm probably where I probably don't have the following that I could have is because I don't share everything. We recently spoke to an athlete, a younger athlete that really struggles with the kind of the abuse online and all the negativity that comes with it because so much of their personality is tied up in that profile. I think if you show less of yourself, it becomes easier to detach. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I can see that, you know, that probably brings you a sense of calm. Yeah, I think so. I think it probably depends on your personality type and, um it's well, difficult an introvert, because I, you're not going to want to be on there all the time anyway are you no exactly and I feel like it's a it is a double-edged sword because I I sometimes feel like I miss out on opportunities by not being fully present all of the time on social media but then like you say like there is another 
there is the rest of life as well going on. Um, so as I said, I don't know what the right balance or the right answer is. It's it's probably different for everyone. Well, the Laura, I would say you, you've not really missed out on much of you. You've achieved an awful lot at your age. It's just maybe not everybody gets to see what, what you have for breakfast, which is a shame. But uh, I'm not interested. <laughs> I think I, I'm also very guilty of thinking that no one's going to be interested in my day to day life because it feels really mundane to me so I think like why on earth would anyone want to know what I'm eating for breakfast or like what my walk into training looks like every day and every now and again I'll I will do a bit of a snapshot but I just fundamentally don't feel like it's very interesting whereas I think other people don't have that block they'll just do it anyway yeah they're the extroverts leave them to it yeah. it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> they, could, they would have done that anyway yeah. it's just now they've got a platform to do it so yeah it's fine um, it's been amazing talking to you, Laura. It's been really, really nice. Thank you for your time. No, it's genuinely been, it's been very interesting. And the time has flown as well. I think that's when you know it's been, it's been good. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Brought to you by Pearson, the world's leading learning company. Now, at the end of today's episode, we do have a chat with a very special guest, the owner of VSI. He's a former professional footballer. He played for Manchester City Football Club. And Tony managed to reinvent himself after his career and create this amazing organisation that allows ex-athletes and executive leaders to work together on high-level, high-caliber executive leadership courses. So we're going to have a quick chat with Tony today, hear a little about himself, a little about the organisation. And if you are looking to apply the Olympic mindset and develop yourselves further, then get in touch with VSI. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed my brief chat with Tony and see you next time. Hi, Tony. How are you? Hey, Dom. I'm all good. How are you? Things your end? Yeah, very good. Thank you. So we've had a really interesting episode this week with Laura Dees, the skeleton bobsled and Olympic medalist. Um, and we've been talking about lots of really interesting concepts. And I wondered if you could kind of give us some advice on where we can go as athletes or aspiring leaders and what we can do to, to learn and improve ourselves. Yeah, it's an interesting time at the moment, Dom. We, as you know, we've been running executive education programs for the world of sport, not just for athlete, athletes, for people working in the industry of sport, but we do get a lot of athletes from across the whole genre of sports that join the programs. And the programs are part-time, so they are, are meant to fit in and around an athlete's schedule. But whilst they're part-time, obviously people have games, competitions, training and so on. So there are occasions when they, they can't attend the program. So by industry demand, this January, we are launching the Masters in Sports Directorship Programme, which we've been delivering face-to-face -face since 2014 now, online. Athletes and people in the industry have basically advocated the desire to want to study on such programmes, but to be able to study in a much more flexible way, which will fit in and around their schedule. So... That program launches in January. What's really interesting about the program is it's international in its look and feel. And what I mean by that is because it's virtual, people from around the world are joining the program. So we've got representation from America, from Europe, from the UAE and from, from Australasia as well. And these are athletes and people that are working in sport as performance coaches and, and sporting directors 
and managers. So we're really looking forward to to delivering that in a virtual world. Great. Sounds interesting. I think, um, you know, taking it to the, to the CEO course that I'm taking part in as well, that starts next week. Do you want to talk a little about that and what's going on with that course? Can't wait to get started with that, uh, Dom. It's it's um, a program that we describe as as mature learning. Again, very much designed for the modern world. So, as you know, it kicks off next week. There are two facilitated days in Manchester, and then over the course of the next seven months, there are another six facilitated days. We've got some great people attending the program, CEOs, COOs, general managers, so strategic leaders from across the industry of sport, um, a very dynamic group working across different sectors, all with a similar drive, i.e. to be as good as they can be, to develop professionally and improve their network on a on a global scale. So, yeah, CEO program, we're really looking forward to starting that next week. You'll have seen over the last couple of weeks, probably a couple of our delegates have moved into some great roles. So Nicky Butt, who is a graduate, obviously a former England and Manchester United player. He's a graduate from the CEO program and only two weeks ago has been appointed as a chief exec for Salford City FC. Um, you may have seen yesterday one of our current delegates, who is, uh, Paul Wynn Stanley, who is head of recruitment for Brighton in the Premier League, has just been appointed as head of global talent and transfers for Chelsea um, yesterday. So uh, loads of our alumni who are already in senior positions are moving into to other strategic leadership roles which is which is great to see that's our passion that's what we want to try and um, deliver for all the delegates that come through our programs amazing really looking forward to it tony and also you know from my point of view really excited to kind of build a new network in a different field as well and i think that's something that the course and yourselves offer brilliant dom great speaking to you as always and look forward to seeing you next week